Obviously, Doctor, you've never been a 13-year-old girl. I Hi. Hey. Um, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah. Uh, hi, it's Default Friend. Um, or you might know me as Catherine D. Or you might know me from other places. So you know me as Katya. <laughs> Many different names. Cool. Well, uh, um, I invited you on here today because you're probably the person on the internet who's done the most research into Tumblr and how it has affected all of us long term. And um, yeah, so how, how did you get into researching it? How, how did that start for you? Um, God, I was getting somehow I like fell into like the culture war corner of Twitter, um, which is weird because I was on I was on tech Twitter for the longest time. And I kept seeing these like really asinine arguments about, um, I mean, basically sort of like, you know, like, oh, we sent our millennials to that college and <laughs> they came back gay. Oh. <laughs> you, know, it's, you know, like the classic sort of like boomer mom line. Um, and I was, I, you know, I would ignore it. Um, I always wanted to like argue with these people that they were like misunderstanding Marx. But the thing is like, I don't know much about Marx myself. So I, there's a, there's like this, gnawing thing in the back of my mind like what if they're right <laughs> I mean they're not but you know I didn't have I, I, I like wasn't able to like adequately argue it and I was like you know what I know that I, I I'm not gonna go and read um all this theory um because I you know this is just not my background um but I know they're wrong um so I'm just gonna prove that this stuff comes from the internet um and then hopefully that's enough to, I don't know. It was like a petty thing. I don't know why I felt so compelled to like, you know, prove, prove the culture war grifters wrong. Um, so I started interviewing people about Tumblr. Um, and then my, my first sort of project was when was your point of first exposure to, um, basically what like culture warriors call grievance studies, right? So it's like all the critical theory stuff, all, you know, the like phrases like Latinx, um, th things like this. Um, yeah. And yeah. And, and I, I mean, I spoke to hundreds of people and, um, I don't have an exact, uh, exact percentage, but I would say like, you know, only a handful of people said that their, their point of first exposure was, was somewhere other than Tumblr. Um, and then I, you know, as I started speaking to people more, I started talking about like different topics, like, uh, you know, sort of getting like generalized summaries of their experiences, um, what it was like to be a heavy Tumblr user, um, what communities they traveled in. Um, and it really started painting this picture for me that um, it was more than just instinct that um, Tumblr taught people, you know, brought, brought us to the, the political point that we're at today. I mean, not, not in totality, but really like laid the foundation for a lot of people's worldviews. Um, and if not from Tumblr directly, something like Tumblr adjacent. Um, and the other thing I sort of was able to like gather proof for was this hypothesis I had. Um, and I had, and I had this hypothesis because I worked in, uh, well, I didn't have a full-time job in digital media, but I was like one of these people who wrote 
you know, shitty articles for $50 a pop. Right. Um, so I had this, I had this theory that, um, part of how a lot of these concepts, um, worked their way into the mainstream was underpaid, you know, quote unquote journalists. Like people probably didn't even have a journalistic background because I know I myself didn't, I was just like, when I was like 19 or something, um, would farm would content farm on Tumblr and Reddit. And then, you know, also like dig and, and, and sites like this, um, and would exaggerate communities, uh, if they made a good head, they made a good headline. Um, and that, you know, in conjunction with like listicles and, uh, like those, the, the style of article that was like, you know, like 10, 10 ways, like teenagers clapped back at who, you know, like this, this was a very popular <laughs> sort of format. Um, and I discovered that, uh, you know, this wasn't an original thought that actually like when the, the Buzzfeed sort of model of journalism started becoming popular, uh, the legacy institutions were like, uh, they're doing something really bad, which is they, they need to create clickbait and they need to generate traffic. So they're taking communities that are niche, um, or if they're not niche, they're misrepresenting them to create clickbait and creating the illusion, um, that things are more significant than they are without the, the journalistic rigor that would have been expected, even in internet culture reporting, um, up until this point. Um, and sort of the classic example and the example I always give in interviews because, um, it's, it's one that has been, um, I, I think it's been the most documented and in, in the most explicit terms, um, especially by mainstream media, um, is with, uh, the true crime community slash hybristophiles, uh, which are the, you know, that group on Tumblr that, um, it, they're fangirls for, uh, for, for murderers. Yeah. And, um, so when the Aurora, Colorado shooting happened, so this is when James Holmes, that Holmes, that guy with like the orange hair and, you know, crazy eyes. Um, and I think he, uh, you know, he, he murdered, uh, people who were watching a Batman or like something in the Batman franchise. Um, so a few people on Tumblr joked around that they had some sort of like sexual attraction to him and they were making fun of the hybristophiles. So there is, it was, there was a high likelihood that, you know, such people existed, but at this time, like not in high numbers. Um, and there was like maybe four or five people on Tumblr who were making this joke and a Buzzfeed reporter wrote an article about homies, right. Uh, which is like, <laughs> just like an, a ridiculous name. And if you know anything about these communities, you know, that's not the type of name that they would give themselves either, right? Like they 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 traffic in euphemisms and not these sort of cutesy, like that's that's a very sort of external label. Um, they're they're like this, you know. It's it's so it's so weird. Like they, you know, they have this hard on for this uh, spree shooter, and this goes viral because it's shocking. Especially, I think it's twenty. This happens in twenty twelve. Um, so it's you know it's we haven't yet had like the. Uh, Jahar, you know, Boston bomber fangirls. And we only have sort of like a vague cultural memory of like the Ted Bundy fangirls. And so CNN picks it up and it becomes, um, you know, one of these like weird news national stories. Um, and then PBS does a fact check and no such community existed. It was like five people shit posting on Tumblr. And they were like, okay, this is actually an endemic problem. People are going on Tumblr and misrepresenting these niche communities as though um, their movements or their, 
more significant than they are. And even in the case, like I said, even in the cases where they are real communities, they're not like these cultural forces. And if we're going to write about them, we have to note that like, they're nascent. They're, you know, there's only dozens of people involved. Um, and when you start looking at, and it's very hard to, to do this, but if you're, you're able to, with some of these big headlines, when you start looking at the evolution of these things, you realize how many times this happens. And it happens with like cultural appropriation um, is another like big example where you could actually like trace the misrepresentation. Um, demisexual, other um, Mogai labels and Mogai is, uh, you know, these sort of niche uh, sexualities like aerosexual or like necrosexual, you know, like these weird things where it's like, you think it means one thing, it means something else. No one's really using it. Uh, but, you know, Angela right. Nagel sort of famously put that table and kill all normies and got in big trouble for it. Um, so that was, I mean, I think that was one of the most significant findings from this is just like, wow, like, you know, not only um, are people not learning these things, like, at, you know, some kind of like eternal, like brainwashing college, but also like the reason the lab leak, right, is, uh, you know, dirt poor would be uh, journalists who are inventing stories to create clickbait and creating this reinforcing uh, feedback loop. Um, and, you know, then we, we see this kind of this, this evolve and become even more insidious, like, um, I'm pretty sure this happened with the alt-right, like where it's like creating, like they take a kernel of truth. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, they're, sorry for the, the rambling. It's oh, no. Still oh, no worries. <laughs> no worries. No, absolutely. I think you're hundred percent right. Like, I don't know, like the first thing that came to my mind when you were talking about that is that, um, ID magazine did this, like, um, gift guide in like back in December, like for Christmas, basically. And it's like, they did these like stereotypical. So it was like, it was like an Instagram post, um, where they did these like collages of like stereotypical, I don't know, internet types. And it was, you know, like, what would you get your, um, true crime obsessed friend. And then it's like a little collage of like, I don't know, like a true crime book and like an outfit and like a candle or something. And it's like talking about how like these like really niche stereotypes, like there was this one that was like it girl podcaster. And it's like, there are probably like three people like that. And they completely misrepresented like the archetype as well. And it was just that kind of thing where it's like, you know, these really like underpaid, overworked, um, journalists or like media types, like writers, like going online and like looking for content to write about, but they have no actual insight into the communities that they're writing about. So it ends up being this like weird, um, like Frankenstein version of the actual thing. And like, yeah, it has like a vague resemblance to what it is, but it's not really that. And it was just like a really like, I don't know, obvious example to me because it was like so visual and it wasn't even an article. It was like literally an Instagram post, <laughs> but um, like, you're totally right. Like about Buzzfeed and stuff like that, that is how these people like wrote articles. And that's not even like to blame them really. It's just how like journalism became, I guess. Yeah. I mean, and you can't even really get mad at the journalists because like, where are the editors? You know, I, I was, I was sort of saying like, uh, you know, Taylor Lorenz got in hot water a few weeks ago because she, she misrepresented 
um, whether or not she'd reached out to some YouTube influencers. Um, but at publications with with like editorial rigor, um, and these days it's it's actually surprising, you know, what those publications are. Like I've had I've had, I've had situations where something's like a tr- like a trending topic on Twitter, and sort of like everyone's tweeting it. And you know, I'll write something to the effect of like, and, and is everyone saying on Twitter like, uh, you know, X Y Z? And a good editor will be like, well, you can't just say everyone's saying on Twitter. Like, you need to you need to provide proof, even if it's sort of second nature to you. You can't just like, and you can't just say that on unverified. Um, and uh, but you you can in a blog post, right? If I was posting it on Substack, everyone would be like, whatever. Like, either they get it or they don't. Um, and I think that's what, you know, it's sort of also like the blogification, like there's no editors here who are saying like, all right, you're making this claim. It's interesting, but prove it because you can't just publish whatever. Right. I mean, it's the same with podcasting though. Like, you know, like when you're just like sitting there and talking to someone or like interviewing someone and stuff, like things get said and none of it is really like, there's no way to prove it. And no one's going to like go and look it up. Cause if you're just like, I yeah, mean, I mean, even the way that people listen to podcasts is like very passive. Like, I don't know, you're like making dinner and listening to a podcast. Like you're not going to pause it and like go and Google the claim. Like no one does that. Well, it should, and it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be your responsibility. I mean, the other sort of interesting thing here is like, you know, with that, ID post that you mentioned, I've noticed there's also like a lot of like subtweeting within articles, whereas people are like writing about mm-hmm. a specific guy who they like don't like or they want to grab their attention. Like, yeah, you know, and this <laughs> happens with like with Red Scare all the time. And I feel like a creep almost because I always call it out. So it's like I'm sort of part of this, <laughs> this process now. Um, but it's like, so many people are, especially in the media set, are like mystified by Red Scare. So there's this like nonstop sort of like describing like a very specific type, but really it's it's not <clears throat> it's not a real like archetype of person. It's like literally just Anacachian, you know. And it's it, yeah. like at some point <laughs> it's just like just say Anacachian or like Dasha Nekrasova. You don't have to like be winking at the audience like oh yes, like a downtown, you know, like. 35 year old Armenian woman, like as though that's like a common sort of archetype of person that we all like, oh yes, like I the, the oh, last yeah. Armenian. <laughs> oh yeah, like, I know a couple. <laughs> yeah. No, definitely. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, how like this whole like thing that people always say about Twitter that it's like half of Twitter is just like making up a person getting mad at him. Like journalists kind of like write articles in that way too, where it's like they'll, you know, they yeah, they'll have like a specific person in mind or leave like will make up a stereotype or like an archetype of a person and like write a whole article about them. But like that person isn't real or like, it's a, again, it's like a mismatch of like different qualities of different people. And then it's just, I mean, I guess the thing is, is that like, I think the thing with like journalists and stuff, and I have like, I studied journalism, I dropped out, but like, that's kind of what my background is as well. And I just remember like being in university and stuff. And it's like, they pretty much tell you right away that like journalism or like media as you that existed, like when you were growing up or like the kind of idea of it that you had in your head, like doesn't really exist anymore. And it's like, you know, you have to be on Twitter. You have to be doing these things. Like you have to be like constantly putting your work out there. You have to be networking. Like you have to be doing all these things. And it's like, I think a lot of like journalists and like media types are just constantly online and constantly on Twitter. And so like that kind of discourse and that kind of way of 
writing and like looking at the world just kind of seeps in and like affects the things you're going to cover and the things you're interested in. But then it's also like niche things. Like the thing with media people is that they're like all obsessed with other media people. Like, yeah. And they, they create, they, they create stories where there are none. And, but then the sort of funny thing is um, often people will be like, well, I don't recognize that in reality, but it seems pretty cool. So then they create like an auxiliary group and then it becomes real. Like they, they're very good at willing things into existence. Um, I know it, it's been called out, but I don't think anyone's done like a really thorough sort of like, uh, you know, this was only a problem. Like this, this became a problem when you made it a problem. Um, you get it right. a little bit with, you know, to be a little darker, like with like the school, with school shooters, like people are like, well, part of it is like, like, yes, this is real. Yes, this is happening. But on the other hand, like if we didn't create like, uh, you know, a cult narrative around this where people have something to build off of and you know we're, we're giving people building blocks for sort of like the the story of their lives that will galvanize them to commit these heinous acts oh right i mean but the interesting thing about school shootings and like columbine especially like being kind of like the first big one is that those guys were very aware of the place they were going to have in popular culture like even beforehand even though there wasn't really any sort of narrative like that that existed before them like i don't know how much research you've done into columbine and stuff but like they because they recorded like these vlogs before they committed the shooting where they kind of detailed their plans and like and they talked a lot about how like when they were dead you know like quentin Tarantino was going to make a movie about them and how they were going to be like celebrities and you know like people were going to like worship them and that's kind of exactly what happened i mean i think there's yeah. kind of like with yeah there's definitely an obsession with the narrative that yeah i mean they're they're like it's they were right because you know not every columbiner uh which is a you know a fan is a weird word but sort of an obsessy of the 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 columbine shooting uh ends up being violent probably 99 percent of them aren't but um, every single person who does uh, commit a mass casualty event, when you, when you audit their digital footprint, they like, you know, they are Columbiners. Like the like Salvador Ramos. Um, I don't know if this is true. I keep I keep saying this, but I saw somewhere. So may or may not be true. I saw somewhere that he had a Pinterest board, um, sort of dedicated to the true crime community. Um, and of course, you know, but. It, but it's proven that so many other of these guys are like involved in this very like fanish engagement with them. Um, and it's not just, uh, Oh, they're cool. And they're writing about it in a journal. It's like literally they're part of forums. Um, Adam Lanza had several tumblers that were like filled with fan work essentially. Um, it's, it's very like, uh, they were very prescient and they, you're, you're right. They knew what they were doing. Right. I just, I just think it's really interesting that like, like on one hand, you know, like the whole thing with true crime is that like, every time you like listen to a true crime podcast or something, like the hosts are always like, Oh, we do not, you know, we do not condone this. Like we're not, you know, you know, we're, we're doing this in support of the victims, like, you know, helping get their story out there. And then it's like, they'll say that as like a prelude to the story. And then the whole story will just be about like the murderers and like how, you know, how like smart and like whatever, whatever they are. Like there's kind of just like this, I think maybe a lot of this sort of obsession with violence of this type just comes from the fact that people are also kind of incapable 
of admitting to themselves that they're drawn to it and that they have it in themselves as well. But then because they're not willing to admit it, it's like this thing becomes, yeah. Like, um, it's, it's, you know, I've, I've never seen anyone make the connection or if they have, like, I've just been unaware of it. Um, it's interesting to me that true crime sort of explodes around the same time, like Twilight and this sort of like, remember, like everyone was sort of like, especially in fandom, there is like the, the psychopathic lover was kind of this big trope. And, you know, it's oh, like yeah. this, this need, need to be like simultaneously like dominated while like, oh, I can fix him. And you really see that um, in this sort of hybristophilic community. I mean, true crime sort of in, like the more normal side of true crime, for sure. Um, you see it where it's like, they're, like, again, it's like a sort of like winking at the audience, like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm in, I want to, like you said, bring attention to like Ted Bundy's victims, but it's really always only about the psychology of, you know, of the killer. And it seems, it seems like it's serving the same purpose of just like, it's this weird, like parasexual sort of fantasy world. Um, like this longing for masculinity in this very strange diseased way. Well, I mean, I think they kind of exploded around the same time because like, um, well, Twilight and like a whole obsession with vampires kind of became a big thing right around, like right before like social media and like smartphones and the internet really yeah. kind of seeped into teenagers' everyday life in the way that it is now. And I think that was because people were kind of sensing that we were moving away from <laughs> real life almost, from, you know, things that were high stakes and that were kind of rooted in mm, like history and violence and all these things that like used to be a part of everyday, like regular life. And they no longer really are in, in, in a real sense. Like they almost feel metaphysical because, I mean, it's, it's funny, like, um, I don't know when the war in Ukraine started and like, you know, I live in Estonia that's like pretty close. Like I'm right next to Russia and stuff. And it felt so real for exactly a week. And then like, you know, the, the more people were talking about it online, like the more, you know, um, the more like Americans were tweeting about it and stuff, the real, the less real it became to the extent where now it's like, you know, like, I mean, we just, we, like, we have a lot of Ukrainian refugees stuff now. And obviously it's like horrible, but it doesn't feel real anymore because, because the thing with the internet is that even if something really horrible and violent and real happens, writing about it kind of creates this mythology around it that makes it seem less real and less present and less in the now. So it almost becomes like a story while it's still happening. So I think that's kind of maybe why like true crime and this like obsession with vampires and violence came around the same time because people were just kind of trying to, I don't know, root themselves in things that were um, real and like high stakes. Yeah. I mean, I think you're totally right. Cause I think like the other side of uh, this, this like, you know, um fascination and also i think this this goes for like any sort of like scary stories or like let's not meet on reddit like any the sort of like or morbid reality on reddit is another one is like you have a physical sensation when reading these stories in a way that you don't with like gruesome news um mm -hmm. and it like kind of shocks you back in your body so you're not like really sedated um you're like forced to feel something and this is sort of like the same with uh, like very like very erotic 
uh, like fan fiction too like you it, the your re, your bodily reaction to these things is involuntary um in a state where like you're usually like very sedentary you're very disconnected you're you're, you're detached from yourself so it's a way to like to you know reawaken your physical presence. That's really interesting. That kind of reminds me of something you said on um, one of your most recent episodes, I believe. Um, I think you talked about how like a lot of these reactionary communities online be, you know, like right-wing bodybuilders or um, like the eating disorder, a corner of Twitter, like people are kind of trying to um, control their bodies and like get in touch with their bodies in a way like can you can you elaborate on that yeah um so i say that like anorexia is the nexus of all digital communities and i guess like really what i mean about uh mean by that is all digital communities come down to like um you know feeling feeling your body like you become so detached from your physical self when you're in these online communities that um, for you to become like really invested in them, you need to somehow bring your body with you. Um, and that manifests either in like, uh, you know, a weird diet, um, or, um, something like bodybuilding or scaring yourself as is the case with true crime. Um, and I, you know, I think, I think that's, that's the connective tissue of every sort of online niche. Um, even, you know, and this isn't a, a value judgment or, I'm not saying like trans people are fake or anything like that, but this, you know, this is also present with the, with the transgender communities and the, you know, the very uh, diverse ecosystem there. Like you are, you're getting sucked into a community online. And again, like just to clarify, like the community expression online has nothing to do with, you know, whether or not this is real or, or whatever, but you, you're, you're on it so much that you have to, to you have to like bring it back to the real world and it always seems to come back to modifying your your physical form um you know it, it's i mean i think that's that's part of the problem with this metaverse stuff because it doesn't it, it doesn't bring you back in that way um and it takes a very special kind of person to become like totally sucked in to the metaverse without somehow modifying their physical self um, it's, it's, it's very, it's very rare. I think that you see someone who's obsessed or like totally down the, the digital subculture rabbit hole where it, their physical body doesn't come back. Um, a really like weird example of this is, you know, like on second life, the biggest community has been, um, a very like obscure form of BDSM. And often these people, like their whole lives are like acting out this type of BDSM in this digital world, but they also live it in real life. Um, and I think mm. that's like, I don't think it, I don't think they'd be so invested in the online expression of it. If there wasn't a way to bring it back, um, and feel it in, in, in their daily lives. Yeah. That's really interesting. I mean, the thing with anorexia also kind of makes me think of like, I don't know how familiar with you are with holy anorexia. Um, oh yeah. But, John Waters' favorite book. <laughs> oh, yeah. But, like, I think with, like, holy anorexia and, like, kind of, well, basically to, like, summarize it is basically, like, that was, like, something that uh, people who were later 
classified as saints were afflicted by, which is basically like they would feel compelled to starve themselves, to leave more room in their body for, for God to enter them. And I think like, I think there's kind of a direct link between that and how like, you know, anorexic girls online kind of interact with the internet where it's like, you know, they'll starve themselves to kind of like leave more room for the metaphysical to enter them as well. So it's kind of like become part of this like internet ecosystem by kind of starving themselves of anything that roots them in the real world, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's an interesting way to put it, especially with like uh, pro-Anna communities and the, the communities that sort of orbit around it. Like I find that like nymphette or coquette communities have that same quality where it's like so, it's so like aspirational and like you kind of like are constantly forcing yourself to to detach in this really unique way and like kind of like, you know, embody the Holy Spirit of the mood board or something. Um, mm. it's, yeah, there's something like weirdly kind of depressing about that, that, you know, that Tumblr community in particular, like, it seems like more than just like lascivious teen girls, there is something sort of like, uh, you know, seeking redemption or something about yeah, it. Yeah. It seems very sort of re- like religious and how it's practiced because like the thing with like super aestheticized corners of the internet is that like, yeah, that like just kind of like seeps into every corner, like every aspect of your life. Like the coquette aesthetic is basically, you know, like be like Brandy Melville clothes or like, I don't know, do oral lip gloss or, or whatever. Like that just becomes like you define yourself by every single object that surrounds you. And that sort of seamlessly bleeds into the internet because these are objects that you've observed other people interact with on the internet. So it just kind of, I don't know, merges all together into like a pretty, yeah. in, in a pretty depressing way. <laughs> well, what's, you know, I had this really sort of depressing experience. Um, I was arguing with someone on Twitter and she was like this, she was, I said something like, trad wives are over bimbos bimbos are over but what snacks and she quote tweets me and she goes um coquettes and i i said i mean i wasn't you know i wasn't having like a serious like uh you know tumblr debate here right but i said something to the effect of like oh like well nymphettes already had their day in the sun in 2012 and she was like no this didn't exist in 2012 and i was like yes it it, like I, i have clear memories of like people you know going to FYE and Barnes and Noble to get like their copy of Born to Die. And like, I knew who I followed. Anyway, so to make a long story short, this sent me down this rabbit hole, like maybe I'm misremembering and like this actually didn't exist in any meaningful way in the 2010s uh, or like the early 2010s. And of course, like it, it did, right? Like there's, I, <laughs> I was very did finding all, this, <laughs> finding all this proof, but I, I, but going back and looking at these, these tumblers of these women who like, because I started with like the people who I remembered so I could go through and, you know, get, you know, go down the rabbit hole since Tumblr is sort of notoriously like bad at archiving and people delete their accounts and accounts get automatically deleted. And it's like this jungle of deactivated, you know, string of numbers. Um, But a lot of these women who were in these circles in the early 2010s 
died. I mean, they've uh, the it was just like a jungle of like abandoned tumblers, um, you know, people who are hanging on to Tumblr for dear life until like 2015, and then you like kind of go down the, that individual person's personal rabbit hole, and you find out that like they they passed away somehow. And I had this like very like sad experience of like, so in this conversation with this this girl, like she was like, you, she basically she was like, you're misremembering because we were tweens when this happened. We just looked up to the you know dozen people who liked uh, Lana Del Rey, and of course I was thinking like I was you know I was like a married adult, you know, <laughs> like I was out in the world when this was happening, and I was thinking like, well, who who did I look up to? And be you know, like the people I looked up to were born in like 87, 88, 89. And I, you know, the the one girl who I really idolized, who of course was like a huge Atlanta fan, you know, definitely pro Anna, de- like all all of these things. I, I went and looked at her her Tumblr for the first time since like 2017 or something. And I found out that she she took her own life. And this was someone who like yeah, I mean, I like not only did I look up to her, but like I talked to her all the time. And obviously, like, you know, we weren't like best friends or whatever. But for, when you're in that weird relationship with someone where like they're older and I don't know, there's just you have like a weird sort of inarticulable connection with them, especially when it's at the point where it's like you're sort of like the little kid that they, like they're kind of taking you under their wing. I don't know. It's like it was really it was like a really weird experience to like to find out like oh wow like this this story like this person who like I looked up to and like I would ask advice from and and stuff like that it reached its natural conclusion like she was so self-destructive like there was no like she she didn't she didn't grow out of it like this was this was the end of the line for her and it was like such a haunting uh haunting moment like this is and also like it being so in the past and like I don't know I don't know if I'm explaining it well, but it was it was a really weird moment. No, it makes sense to me. Yeah. I mean, I think when you kind of come to define your whole being as through these sort of um, through these objects, through these like through different pieces of media, like it kind of becomes and all of these like the thing with like the coquette, like nymphette aesthetic is that it's really rooted in, well, like girlhood and teenhood and like innocence and eventually like you know you're gonna either gonna have to grow out of it or it's gonna kind of haunt you forever and then if it haunts you forever then you know how many options do you really have there's not a there's not a good off-ramp for uh people who sort of sexualize their youth and also their eating disorder um and it is it's like we don't get there's no like cultural narrative or like cultural space for these women to age gracefully and i you know i think there's sort of like we like there's sort of this instinct to like think of them as like law cows or like make fun of them in this very vicious way but you do like you do get away with it for so long and then you wake up one day and you're you know you're 28 29 and like you are starting to look your age and like you you can't you just can't connect to that anymore and I I mean I think instead of making fun of like individual people who feel attached to this archetype or this community we should be asking like well why isn't there like why do they feel like there's nowhere else to go because like 
we kind of force women into this weird position where it's like you are once you leave the maiden phase and enter you know enter mother phase or even crone like there you you're no longer socially you you uh, socially useful and like you have to like continuously like quit, like keep setting yourself back and like affecting like a, a youthfulness um people are you know it's, it's it's more than just like an appearance based thing it's also like um i think it's it's in a sense like very hard for women to be in a happy relationship and still be like socially engaged online um and you know i think there's the argument well, like go touch grass or in a relationship but a lot of people don't have options like they live in small towns or like you know online is the only space where they feel like they they get any socialization so I don't know. There's a lot of weird instances where they're just like totally pushed out. Um, and people just hang on to their youth as long as they can. And we end up making fun of them. And so asking, well, why, why don't we let people age? Right. I mean, I think there's also, there's an aspect of it being just like, there is no real narrative for growing into womanhood anymore because there's no, you know, like there's no real sort of, checkpoints anymore because it's like you know being a mother like having kids like getting married has been kind of devalued to the extent where it's not really a narrative that people feel that attracted to or you know inspired by for the most part and you know like the girl boss narrative that kind of sustained a whole generation of women like in the 2010s like now it's been kind of dismantled as well so what other narratives or archetypes are there really for people to attach themselves to i think that's part of the reason why like the coquette and aesthetic um archetype has kind of like had such a comeback because you know this idea i think well, I think with the 2010s, like the late 2010s, is that I think a lot of sort of the youth culture of the day was kind of rooted in this desire to, um, in this drive to like grow up almost. Because even when I think about like when I was in high school and stuff, and, you know, I had my Tumblr phase when I was in middle school and then being in high school and stuff, like, the things that were popular, like be it the, I don't know, be it like the TV show girls and stuff. It was all kind of about this drive to like, even if you think about TV shows like sex in the city and kind of like this aesthetic of like uh, being an older woman, like being a career woman, I think those kinds of narratives have kind of disappeared for younger generations. If that makes sense. Like there's really no, there's really no kind of, narrative or aesthetic of adulthood for young women to attach themselves to and sort of grow into anymore. And instead it's like, I mean, youth has always been fetishized to a certain extent, but um, there were still other options. And now it kind of feels like there really are no other options. Well, it's, so I, I totally agree with you. Like I remember being 21 and going to a party and like there is this, there are these two 28 year old women there and they're, they're like so beautiful. And I just remember thinking, and then like, you know, this, this thought persisting, like, I can't wait until I'm like 25 because then people will finally respect me. And like, I'll be able to hold my own and be like independent. And then, you know, like, I guess this like didn't happen when I was 25 because I was like in a very different, uh, like environment, but that, you know, like by the time I did reach 28, I was like, oh, like actually I wish I was, you know, I, I wish I was 21. And, it, but I think it's because like, even if you watch, you know, you're saying with like TV, like, you know, there's this real, 
narrative that like that courses through um everything from like dramas to sitcoms where it's sort of like this is a space for adults and this is a space for children and adults are adults and all the characters are in their early 30s or, or, or mid 30s even um and there's like a real respect for coming into your own in that way and like you know the joy of being in your 30s or your late 20s even um and this you know this expression of like separating yourself from children and teenagers um and then in the 2010s the narrative flips and it's like oh you know like i'm incapable of adulting and oh i'm just a kid and it's a you know these people are like the same ages and it was it, it it's I didn't notice it until I was on like a really long flight and I watched like, you know, I watched a bunch of William Grace and I watched a bunch of friends and then I watched, you know, then I started watching girls and, and, you know, I was, I, I watched, it was sort of like in, uh, you know, like chronological order of, of when the, these sort of like mainstream programs comes out and I realized like, Oh wow. Like we really like, <laughs> we've really changed how we think of ourselves. Um, it used to not, you know, it was, it was, there was sort of like, um, a little bit of abjection about growing up, but it was taken with humor and, you know, grace sometimes even. And now it's just kind of like everyone is like a sedated child who's just like incapable of caring for themselves. And, you know, the world is all doom and there's, there's nothing, um, there's nothing good about it. Um, you know, I don't think the lifestyles that were promoted in 90s sitcoms are exactly anything to aspire to. A lot of them are like these very like rootless, like everyone's having like casual sex all the time. You know, nobody has a family, <laughs> you know, kind right. of lifestyles. But at least there's like this, there's like a shred of happiness, even if there is some recognition that there's like a loneliness to it. Um, and I think that's probably one of the big differences between like the 90s, 2000s and the 2010s. Hey, no, definitely. I mean, I guess there's a sense of community as well, which is kind of lacking. And like, I mean, even if you look, you know, even if you compare like Sex and the City and Girls and stuff, like there's a real sense of kind of like friendship and community in Sex and the City. And there's none of that in Girls, which is kind of like part of why Girls is so brilliant. But it's it's definitely kind of, yeah, it's definitely not there. I think also like I was just like kind of going from in my head through like like the different kind of like, even if like, even like watching TikTok videos and stuff, like what do girls aspire to? And I think a lot of a sort of the, um, the, the dreams and the aspirations of today are kind of like, you know, like the it girl archetype and like nepotism babies and stuff like that. So I think a lot of, a lot of these sort of aspirational archetypes of today are kind of something that you can't really possibly have any control over like you're either born into it or you know you get lucky but it's not something you can really like work towards so it's kind of I don't know it's almost like um like a fan fictiony version of reality of or of what reality could could be for people I think you're totally right I mean it, you know, and that's that like really speaks to like our relationship with the internet because there is sort of this like, um, like subconscious thought also that you can just will things into existence and it's sort of totally your choice. And I think that people experience these sort of like crises when they realize that their like digital fantasy will never manifest in real life. Um, 
you know, I, I think what you're saying, like, is also why um, people love manifestation and uh, like these tarot card readings that sort of like predict the future, uh, you know, like there's all these, there's all these different components of it where it really is because like, if you write it, it's true online, but that doesn't translate back into the real world. And it, it's actually like really confusing. And I think that we haven't quite uh, worked out the cultural script with telling people like, you know, the fan fiction you write is not, is that's like, you can't, you can't just will that into existence. There's things that you need to actively do to achieve that. Right. But I think that's why the narratives like, you know, like the nepotism baby, like it girl fantasies are so popular because that's not something you could ever possibly like work towards. Like it is the kind of thing that's either, you know, happens to you or it doesn't happen to you. So I think maybe that's why, like, if we're talking about manifestation, people like trying to like will things into existence, like that's the kind of thing where it's like either you're capable of willing it into existence for whatever reason, or you're not like, you you can't possibly, you know, it's not even like the girl boss fantasy of like, you know, I don't know, like running your own company. Like what's your favorite position, CEO, like all of that, like you, you can't possibly, like, there's no steps you can take to kind of work your way towards that. Like, I think also, unless, of course, like um, there's this also, I just remember coming across this TikTok that kind of really stuck with me for some reason. And it was this girl who um, she was running like an aesthetic TikTok account, which basically like, you know, it's kind of like visual mood, like video mood boards of like, she would like film like reels of her outfits for the day and stuff like that. And she posted this TikTok that was like, um, it was something like, oh, you know, I'm working so hard now at 16. So at 18, I can be an it girl living in Paris. And I just thought that was, I, I don't know why it had such a, why it stuck with me like that. But I, I just kind of remember thinking like, oh, wow. Like, um, like, first of all, the fact that she was like so young, <laughs> like 16, like working towards like being a young, you know, it girl model and stuff. And the fact that she had this kind of like go getter attitude about it as well, where it's like, oh, I can, you know, I can work my way to being an it girl in Paris, which are kind of like these, you know, like it's kind of like the Jane Birkin fantasy almost, which really like, again, that either happens to you or it doesn't. But I, I guess the, the sort of the motivation behind it and kind of like the, yeah, the go-getter attitude really stuck with me <laughs> yeah there's this there's this girl who i follow on tiktok her her name's like pretty vintage or something and she has this sort of like obviously fake british accent i'm kind of obsessed with her <laughs> oh, i don't like i don't even remember her username so i just like don't seek her out but every time i see her i make sure to watch her videos and she's kind of like this where it's just like i mean it's it's not to- it's not like a totally novel thing like i remember people sort of like dressing like they were in a Wes Anderson movie when I was that age like hoping that like somehow you know like if they dressed like it for long enough like the the movie would sort of like start cobbling itself around them you know and just eventually that would be their lifestyle um but yeah there is something like when you when you see this kind of behavior as an adult especially like on a platform like TikTok where it's just sort of like so easily accessible and you could like flip through their whole sort of like thought process in one hit through video like not even through a blog where like you're kind of filling in any of the blanks on your own there's something kind of like what's going on (laughs) you know like something kind of like haunting about it no absolutely no definitely yeah I I just I TikTok is really interesting there was another it's kind of a it's kind of a tangent but there was this TikTok that I saw today that was like um 
It was basically like this account that does like little like edits of like them playing Sims basically. And someone had asked this girl, I'm, I'm assuming it's a girl. I, I don't actually know, but um, someone had asked this person like how, you know, like what Sims mod, mods do you use? And she was like, oh, there's this mod that I can't live without. And it was like a mental illness mod for Sims. And, uh, and it's like a video of her, you know, like screenshotting her screen and being like, you know, like there's a Sim like in the middle and around them is like the, the Sims like wheel where you like choose traits and stuff. And it's like, uh, you know, choose a mental illness and it's like, um, schizophrenia, like depression, bipolar. And the, 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 like the, the caption of the video was like, oh, you know, it just really provides a narrative for the game. And I just thought like, I just thought that was really interesting, like how, like sort of people can't even really imagine like playing Sims without mental illnesses anymore. That's so funny. I, I've never seen anything like that. Like I would never even think of like I don't know expressing mental illness via the Sims. <laughs> yeah, like, but it also like the caption really stuck with me because it was like, oh, it provides a narrative for the game, and it's like people can't imagine a way to narrativize their lives or like their stories without there being like, you know, these sort of, um, concrete. So, so I have this theory about like depression, especially in like depression in young women that a lot of people kind of, I'm not saying it's not real. Like, you know, I think most people have struggled with it, but I think people can kind of get attached to their depression and, you know, their anxiety and stuff as a way to like provide a, concrete narrative for their lives because like oh you're depressed like that that becomes your kind of main characteristic that you can fashion your life around especially like if you kind of get really into the not the subculture surrounding it but sort of the aesthetic of it so like you know like Sylvia Plath and um I don't know Girl Interrupted and all these like different pieces of media that um center around mental illness like that just becomes a way for you to um, provide a narrative and a storyline for your life. So it's like later on, if you're like telling someone about your life, you're like, oh yeah, like, you know, I'm, I've been depressed from a really young age. Like I spend this and this much time in, at a mental hospital. Like it provides a sort of concrete way to, um, frame your life. And so I thought it was interesting that like this person was like talking about basically doing the same thing, um, in Sims. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I mean, the the subculture around being depressed like they, I'm, there's many subcultures around it right I think that's definitely a real thing and I think what's like interesting about it too is like it's a subcultural identity that nobody can take from you you know like mm. it's so individual like you like what's shared is sort of like like different media or like maybe different aesthetics but like for example if you're a punk someone can take that away from you right like you can't really like you can be a punk on your own, but like the truest expression of it, like you need to be going to shows, you need to be part of something. And if you're expelled from that community, then there, it's it like someone can take it from you, but no one can take away like your personal expression of self-harm and like your two-week stay at McLean in Massachusetts, right? Like you, yeah, that is firmly yours. And uh, the, the, you know, the thing that is more optional is like the community expression of it, but all the other things that make it a subculture is, is totally in your own hands. Um, and I, I mean, I think that's, that's part, you know, I think you're totally right. There's this like narrativizing function and I think it adds meaning to people's lives, but I think also like, not only does it add meaning, it's like, 
nobody else is in control of whether or not you're depressed. It's like totally yours. And same with eating disorder, same with self-harm, same with bipolar. Um, there's, you don't need anyone else to validate that. It's all you. Yeah. A hundred percent. And no one can claim that as like a phase, you know, like that's something that's right. with you for life for better, or for worse. Like it's kind of like, I don't know, just, I kind of remember being like 12 or like 13 or whatever, and like, you know, feeling depressed for the first time. And it was this element of like, in my head, I was thinking, oh, you know, it's just like, you know, it's just like Effie or whatever. Like there was this need in me to kind of, um, fetishize my own feelings of misery by connecting them with these like characters and media archetypes that I was into. And then it's kind of like you grow so attached to it that at some point you no longer feel in control of it anymore. It just becomes this huge part in your life that controls you more than you control it. But then it's too late by that point to really do anything about it. Then like, then it actually becomes a problem. But I think in the beginning, it's like you, I think a lot of people who um, kind of start to develop those kinds of feelings early enough in life, like, you know, and kind of connected with these communities online, like be it on Tumblr, or like TikTok now or whatever, it, it just becomes a way for you to define yourself. And then eventually, yeah, it just, it stops just being um, like an identity. It also just becomes like a real problem that you either have to deal with or like it kind of controls your life eventually. This is, this is going to sound like so bad, but I think like, I think a lot of people like they sort of make it worse or like reinforce it for the hundred percent, you know, like it starts (sighs) off like, like they, they don't, they're not someone who sort of, you know, who is drawn to self-harm for sort of these intrinsic reasons, but they, they, you know, they do it once and then it doesn't stick and then they do it enough until it does stick. And I mean, I know it's like controversial to say, but especially like in the live journal, MySpace era, this was a huge problem. And, you know, people grew out of it and you, they, you know, not because they sought therapy, but because it's like, they weren't suffering. Like you can't, like, you can't just decide you are someone who cuts yourself or someone who has an eating disorder. Um, you, you know, there's a, there's a performance element of it. Um, and some people have an eating disorder because they have an eating disorder and some people have an eating disorder because they're performing an eating disorder. And it's interesting because like, even, you know, at all levels of discussion about this, we used to have, we used to like acknowledge it like, oh, there's anorexics, and that, that in itself is its own expression of mental illness and it's a problem. But today, I mean, I think you would be like burned at the stake if you suggested that anyone was like performing these things. <laughs> I mean, I guess maybe there's a little bit more room for it. I, I've noticed on TikTok that there is slightly like more space for certain criticism, but you got to tread lightly because um, if you if you proffer these criticisms and you haven't uh, otherwise been careful. And so- Hi, sorry. Just yeah. did that thing that I talked about. <laughs> Thank you. My, um, my computer does that too. My computer did that with when I was talking to like David Firth, who does oh. his salad fingers. And it was like so just like nerve wracking. Carol, I don't think I can use the episode because I didn't realize that my computer did that. 
Oh no. Yeah, it did that to me yeah. once because I actually had to pay for Zoom premium because it kept doing it so much. And then because it wasn't premium, it would actually stop recording. And I ended up losing like 30 minutes of an episode once. And it was just like heartbreaking. <laughs> um but sorry for the interruption. Um, what was the last thing you said? <laughs> um I think I said something like on TikTok, like I've noticed on TikTok that like, I still think it's very difficult to to criticize um, or, you know, maybe like postulate that someone might be like faking it. But I've noticed on TikTok, like if you tread lightly, you know, these critic there's more space in the in the discourse for criticizing uh, people who are a little bit too like performative. I feel like at peak Tumblr. And like, even until like, like recently, like it was really hard to be like, this like, isn't you, like you're faking it or like, you don't need to label your experiences in this way. And there, the, you know, we're sort of loosening the belt, which is, I think an, an interesting, um, an interesting development. Um, and it, a lot of it comes from like, uh, sort of like younger millennials on TikTok who are still sort of, uh, you know, like tumblr adjacent um mm. i don't i don't quite know how to describe the type because it's not one subculture it's just a, it's just a, a type you know <laughs> you kind of know yeah. it when you see it and they're sort of like you know like someone like a, a zoomer will say some like ridiculous thing or like some sort of like over the top proclamation about their mental illness or their gender identity or something and it's like stitched with the millennial who's like you know i i've been out as whatever for 15 years i'm like grow up <laughs> you know and they say of course they say it more eloquently than that but um I, I never thought I'd see the day <laughs> that there'd be a, no, there'd be pushback <laughs> no yeah I know exactly what you're talking about it does feel good that that's becoming a thing now we're kind of like the I mean I guess it's because the one thing that TikTok does do well is that kind of like because there's so much content out there on TikTok and you know there's so much of it and people spend so much time on it there's no way you can really kind of um like isolate yourself into a little like eco chamber on TikTok like that's not really possible the way that it was on Tumblr because on Tumblr you know like you would you would end up as part of like one fandom and then that was basically your whole identity on Tumblr or like fandom or you know like community to be like eating disorders or you know sad girl Tumblr or whatever. And then you kind of didn't interact with anyone outside of their, of that niche group. Um, and so you could really kind of, I think that's where a lot of these like really extreme beliefs and like proclamations came from while as on TikTok, I feel like, you know, because the algorithm is, pus- is pushing so much content all of the time. It's like, you end up seeing things in your feed, like that really kind of don't necessarily align with your views. Um, and I know that the more time you spend on it, like the more you kind of like, you know, um, click like not interest on videos, the more kind of, um, the more tailored to, to your interests it becomes, but still, I think because there's so much stuff out there, it's kind of impossible to completely separate yourself. So people are kind of starting to realize that like, oh, you know, like a lot of these communities are like kind of really insane and sort of, um, too isolated for their own good. Yeah, you know, it's it, and something I've noticed about TikTok is like, it's actually really impressive when someone becomes like outside of sort of like a certain type of influencer who's getting like external help. Um, 
it's actually, it's, you know, it's really impressive when someone becomes TikTok famous because, or TikTok, TikTok influential, because I feel like concepts become influential and, and people might be famous, but in a different way, like a Twitter famous person has a real chance at like having some kind of physical world impact, but TikTok kind of like limits the amount of influence you're allowed to have. And I've noticed mm-hmm. the people who become most influential, like, so not necessarily famous, but like influential off TikTok need institutional help. Um, they need like, whether it's Hollywood or a modeling agency, putting them in ads or like, you know, journalists who see themselves and like some young upstart and are, and are sort of manufacturing a career for them you know like there's no sort of like doing it on your own um in the way you're able to on on twitter which i think is like really interesting um and i remember like reading something about tiktok where like they didn't want the most famous people on the app to like be able to like like rise up against the company so they try to keep like everything in-house and like you kind of just like live in like that ecosystem um and they don't i think they don't want people to get off the app um but inevitably like the only way to like really have impact outside of certain concepts or at you know on a more individual level you have to leave and bring yourself to another social media platform right but then also i think the thing with twitter is that um, like I've joked about this before, but Twitter really is kind of the only place in the internet where you can have like, you know, someone can have like 50,000 followers on Twitter and still work minimum wage. Like that's not a thing anywhere else. You have 50,000 followers on TikTok, you know, you're doing ads, you're doing all these things. Well, as on Twitter, it's kind of, it really is kind of like, mm, like a live journal of sorts or like a blog where you can't really like monetize the content you produce on Twitter. You have to be doing something on the side of Twitter to make money off of your presence on Twitter, you know, be it like Substack or Patreon or any of these other things. While well, as on TikTok, like the content itself is monetizable. Um, and so like that's, someone was that's like, that's true. Yeah. And like someone with like 10 K on TikTok can be making like, you know, like $600 a month, like doing ads was on Tumblr, was on Twitter. Like that's, that's not really. And on Twitter, there's also no guarantee that your following on Twitter will, will like translate into your following and like, you know, into people following you through your other ventures. So someone can be like really famous for their tweets, but then, you know, you like look at their podcast and like no one's listening to it. That's okay. So that's, that's true. But I do think what Twitter off, offers is, is sort of like, you can like, you can really build a career off of your Twitter following in a way that you can't in other, like there's, for example, like there's all these Instagram influencers who are making a ton of money um, or like, at least there were like this, this era is probably over, but we're like making a ton of money and like, we're able to monetize really well, but they like, they're not necessarily, like they don't have influence necessarily. Like, like if they're, if their aesthetic, if their aesthetic had influence, like it's never going to be credited back to them. Whereas I've seen so many people use Twitter by targeting the right people, like, create a career out of it in a way that's really hard to do on other platforms so i think there's maybe like a right and wrong way to do twitter um and it like offers different benefits than um than like other platforms like you could have like 
a million followers on TikTok and like you're making money off ads, but you're not going to be invited on like a high profile podcast. Whereas if you're like, if, if you're, uh, you know, pumping out the, the right kind of bangers on, on Twitter, all it takes is like 10,000 followers for you to start getting noticed by uh, institutions. So it, it is a, it, it is a weird distinction. And it's like, which one's more valuable? I think it depends on what your goals are. Like, if you want to be um, like a public intellectual, like you really do need to like play the Twitter game and like suck the right dick, you know, verbally, right? But, you know, no, a TikTok isn't going to yeah. do you any, right? Like a TikTok's not going to do anything for you. Um, and then, you know, there's there's certain exceptions, but I feel like those people really have had... Um, institutional help again whether it's hollywood or you know the press or or whatever but it's been sort of like a like an operation <laughs> to to like build their careers um and it's it it seems like um yeah it seems just like a totally different uh mechanism no 100% but i think the difference is that like the majority of people on like active on twitter are are kind of trying to be like public intellectuals or like writers or like, you know, media types. And that's kind of the audience on Twitter as well. While as on TikTok, like the audience is just like regular people. So even if you're, you know, even if you're doing video essays, the people interacting with those video essays are not like, I don't know, people who write for the New York Times. It's mostly just like teenagers or like regular people who are just like scrolling through their feed. Right, so, exactly. And it's and what I think is like so interesting is like those like you could have a million of those people who love you and like that it's it it's not as much of a currency as you would think it is, right? Unless mm-hmm. like I would say like having two thousand blue check this is I feel disgusting saying this, but having two thousand <laughs> like blue check followers on Twitter it has like more like uh gives you more social capital than a million followers of just regular people on TikTok. It does, does, is one like more satisfying than the other? I mean, it depends on what your goals are, but it's, it's really striking though. Like you would think the million follower TikToker would have more social capital, but like ultimately they really, they really don't like they might, they might make more, more money off of ads. Like the, you know, you, you could still languish in obscurity, uh, as, as you know, the, the Twitter person who every journalist knows, right. But like you get more access to other things. Um, and like, that's, it's, it's a weird distinction. And I, you know, I don't think one is like better, better than the other. Um, but right. it's, it, it was like shocking to me to, to, to like realize like, Oh wow. It's like, it's the, like, it's not, it's not a numbers game basically is what I'm trying to say. Right. No, absolutely. But I think the weird thing about Twitter is that like, I remember, so like I, whatever, I started tweeting when I was still living in London and, you know, like telling someone in London that, you know, you, you like, you have a podcast, you like, you do Twitter or whatever that kind of has like a real social capital to it, which like, you know, I would like meet like, um, so my roommate in, in London was like, um, kind of active in like, like sort of conservative social circles in London and people would like meet her and like tell her, Oh, like, you know, your roommate, like I love her Twitter, blah, 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 things like that, which was kind of like, which seemed normal at the time. And then <laughs> you know things happened and I ended up moving back to Estonia because of like family issues and whatever. And, you know, telling someone here that you like run a podcast is like, Oh, like, 
cool. <laughs> you know, that's a nice hobby to have. Like people don't have the same sort of, or like, you know, people are like, oh, Twitter. Oh, that's like the place where like, I don't know, like, you know, old people are like, people don't have the same sort of perception of these things. While it's like, you know, something that has like social capital in like a bigger city or like, in, I guess in a different country as well, it doesn't really like have any sort of value to it here where people are like, literally like, oh, like, so, so what do you do? <laughs> like, what, what is it that you want to do? Because it doesn't like seem that's, quite real here. That's a good point. Like, so there, so I have two things to say that. So like the first thing is like, it does actually, you're, you're right to say like, it creates the illusion to that. Like certain things are more significant than they are. Like, you know, like, again, like I hate to like be the person to say it again, but like dime square, right? Like, mm. you know, that, <laughs> that's like a really good example of that where it's like, within a certain milieu that's a meaningful thing to say if i said that to my sister who like lives in the south she'd be like i don't know what that is i don't want to know what that is like what are you talking about <laughs> but yeah the uh, the other side of that is those things incubate and eventually do hit the mainstream in a way that i don't think other platforms um as reliably offer um because because of the lack of sort of like institution institutional like infiltration so like um you know like someone like like jordan peterson right like he he not that he he was like a twitter person first he definitely wasn't but like like someone like him like his influence gets sort of like charged by institutional help and like 10 years ago who cares? Who knows who he is? He's just some dude on YouTube who has a Twitter presence. And eventually, like, because the powers that be have visibility into these spaces, like, over time, like, he's he's able to, like, detach from that and, like, become a news story, become, you know, become, you know, get the book deal, um, and go through, you know, go through those, go through that cycle and, like, become a real, like, a real celebrity sort of detached from the the you know internet monster right but it's much right. harder to do that like i don't like will like emily marico ever you know be like a, a household name with like a cookbook and stuff like probably not like maybe but probably not you know and there's and there's right. tons of people who are even like less significant than she is um so I, I mean, I guess maybe it's less platform specific and it's like wherever there's, wherever the institutions are watching, it's probably easier to like somehow translate that into like a more, um, I don't know, like a more recognizable form of influence or celebrity. Um, maybe it isn't like platform, it's, it's platform agnostic. It just depends like where are the journalists looking. And then, and then like the ultimate point is, I think these institutions have a lot more power than uh, people people would like to believe like your subsect's right. only popular when it gets name dropped in the New York Times like this, is that you know what I mean like like you need that I, I feel like that's that's sort of like the quiet part of, of the of this whole whole racket right I mean I think people now want to believe that institutions no longer have any influence or power like in the age of the of the internet you know because like a random person on tiktok can have more followers than like i don't know dave magazine for example but then like you know it's still dave's magazine after all like it still has more power and more influence than this random person will ever have and i think also but i think in a way it is platform specific because like um 
like, I think the thing with Twitter is that like, if you're active on Twitter and, you know, you actively interacting with people on Twitter, they kind of become like little characters in your head almost. <laughs> well, it's like oh, with TikTok, yeah. it's kind of like, it's, it's a passive kind of engagement where, you know, like you, you can scroll through someone's feed and they're like a person. And yeah, like, as you said, you can really kind of get a sense of who they are from even watching like one video, but then you're not interacting with them in the same way that you're interacting with someone on Twitter, because Twitter is kind of, you know, someone, the thing with Twitter is like that. Yeah. You can be followed by someone with like a blue check, or you can be followed by someone with like five followers and you're kind of interacting with them in the same way. Um, so it kind of seems like very clickish in a way. Like if you're, if you're in a certain niche of Twitter, you are in that niche and people will like, it's really funny, like listening to podcasts from this niche is because like, you know, we'll all like name drop each other. <laughs> and if, if you're engaged with it, like, you, you know, oh, okay. Like th- this is the person they're talking about, but I'm guessing like listening to it, like, like, I always wonder, you know, like people who just like randomly come across my podcast, like, do they, do, do they even know, like, do, do they get a sense of who I'm talking about or are they just like, you know, does it just sound like I'm talking about like a random person like I live with or, you know, like how, how do these things like come across? Like, I don't know, a big shock for me was kind of like for a while I didn't like when I started on Twitter and like started this podcast and stuff, I really like was not active on Instagram at all. And then like gradually I kind of like started posting the episodes on Instagram and stuff. And people would like DM me and be like, Oh, I had no idea. This was your podcast. Like I've been listening to it, but I had no idea. Like <laughs> It was just always like so weird to me. Cause it's like, Oh, and, and then I also realized that the majority of my audience was literally like people who would like randomly find me like through recommendations or like Instagram and stuff and not through Twitter. And like, I, I don't know. This is this is kind of a rant now, but I just I just find it really no, funny no. and interesting. <laughs> I mean, I totally relate with this because it's my audience. It's I for some reason like I've never been able to like really like uh like hang with like the Twitter subcultures that like I'm adjacent to. Like there's a lot of Twitter subcultures that I should be in, but I'm not for like for no reason, you know. So like the bulk of my audience. But then I'm, I'm, I have this big audience. So like, it's, it's a, it's a weird thing. Right. But the bulk of my audience isn't actually who you would think that it is. It's actually like Gen X people. And the, the number of people who are sort of in the milieus that you would imagine would be listening to me, it's like vanishingly small. It's like four people or something. And, and, you know, the, the thousands of people are like rando you know, Gen Xers in Oklahoma. And um, they, like, one of the biggest criticisms I get is like, um, you know, I like, I love your stuff on Newsnet, or I, you know, I, I, I totally like, you know, I, t- I totally resonate with what you say about the internet. But when you mention Twitter stuff, I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, because it's like the, the lens, the lens through which I'm looking through the world is not actually the people who I'm talking to. Um, like, not only am I, I'm like, just not talking to them at all. Like I'm in communication sort of on my own on, on certain topics. And it's been like, I've been working, I'm like more conscious about it. Like I need to stop mentioning stuff that happens on Twitter because it's like, those people don't listen to me. And I'm, the, the dialogue only goes one way. And the people who do listen to me are in like a totally different part of the, the online geography. Mm. Yeah. That, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. No, I, I, I get it. Yeah, that, that 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 is kind of what I've been thinking about as, as well. Like, and lately I've been really kind of 
not into Twitter simply because like, well, first of all, I realized that like my audience really wasn't coming from Twitter at all. And then also just like, it, it does seem kind of like a, it, it is kind of like talking to your friends in, in, in a way. And which is why I like Twitter to begin with, because you can, you can really like kind of build meaningful friendships and relationships with people by just talking to them. And I've met a lot of people in real life through Twitter that I really like love and have, you know, had meaningful real life moments with, but it, it is kind of, it is like a weird thing. It's, I mean, Twitter is ultimately incredible for networking and kind of is kind of bad for getting your message across. Yeah, I think, I, I think that's right for the, for the most part. It's, it's like, it, it definitely like makes you myopic um, in a weird mm-hmm. way. Like I've had so many times, I don't know if this is like not something to share on a podcast with someone I don't really know, but <clears throat> I've had so many times where I've thought like my, uh, my career is over because I've gotten into some kind of like Twitter spot only to realize like, I'm again, like I'm not speaking to those people even, you know, like it's not that I'm not primarily in that community. I'm just like not in that community. And like, I don't realize cause like, that's just what I see on my feed. So I assume that I'm like, this is what I'm part of, but it's like, it creates like a weird, like you start wearing these like Twitter goggles and you like, you lose your sense of place and like the grand scheme of things. Um, and it, it, you know, it's, it's taken me until recently where it's like, oh, there's no such thing as really being over. Like you just, it's too vast for anything to really end. Like things only end when you stop trying, which has been like a, I don't know, maybe it seems like contradictory with what I've, you know, been saying about how you need like institutional support. Like that's, that's true, but it, you know, you just have to tweak your definition. Um, but I really, I feel like I'm rambling and I'm not making very much sense now. No, it makes perfect sense to me because these are the kind of things that I've been thinking about a lot lately as well. And like, I mean, even with like, I don't know. I mean, I'm, you know, since this is like kind of a, I guess like a final episode of sorts, like I'm, I'm, I'm going to do another like bonus episode as well, but this is kind of like a summary, I guess, of, of this podcast in a way. So I guess it's fine if we like get really personal, but I, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot. Like I, like I'm 22, I've dropped out of university. Like, you know, I'm, I am kind of doing what I, wanted to do when, you know, when I graduated high school and I first went to college and stuff, but then I think also kind of by kind of engaging with all of this stuff and like, I would have graduated university this year if I had stayed and, you know, like seeing what my sort of course mates are up to or not up to, like, it kind of makes me question the whole um, idea of like having a media career and like what that means and, you know, whether or not that's something I would want to have or, you know, how would that even work? And then also like, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, like um, when I first started doing it and stuff and I would like go up to these podcasts on these podcasts and like talk about things really openly. Like now I'm like thinking, Oh, like maybe I shouldn't have said, maybe I shouldn't have said all those things because I'm pretty sure like they would, will, they will eventually come back to haunt me. Like if I ever wanted to do something like normal in like the real world. And I guess like now, like living in Stoning and stuff, like, as I said, like your sort of your media presence really has no influence on your real life and people don't really understand how those two are connected. 
But then I'm like thinking, oh, like if I ever moved anywhere and I was like, you know, trying to get a job and then there's this podcast out there where I like openly talk about how terrorism is an art form. Like, is, is that going to come back to haunt me eventually? And the answer is probably yes, but um well, it depends yeah. on it, it. It's yes. It's, I feel like it's yes and no. Um, I think there's ways around it. What, what I think actually comes back to haunt people is burning bridges like that, mm. for that to screw you over. Um, you know, th- there's, there's obviously like a threshold for this, like people who are using their real name and just like tweeting, like racism isn't real in the N word with like reckless abandon under their like legal name, <laughs> real name is a weird concept. But, and, and you know, like I, I, yeah. I have friends who are software engineers who do shit like that. And I'm just kind of like, dude, like be a, be a, a frog and on, if you're going to be posting that kind of shit, but like that, like that will, that there's a chance that like someone Googles you and then that comes up. But for the most part, um, like the thing that people will really weaponize is like their dislike of you, you know? And that's when like, I've been, I've been like legal name doxxed a couple of times and I'm, I'm certain that those are just people who like, I pissed off in real life, <laughs> you know, like not some like angry, uh, you know, angry rando who has a, a bone to pick with me. It's like probably someone, it's probably the same guy, like the one, like one guy, <laughs> you know, who I met in, in 2019, right. Who just like wants to make my life a little bit more difficult. Um, and, but like many such cases, right. Like I think that's, that's sort of true of everyone. Um, you know, there's certain communities where you don't want to kick the hornet's nest, certainly, um, who will make it their business to take you down. But for like, for your average people, you know, um, it, it's, you just got to worry about like, don't, don't piss the wrong person off. Um, which uh, I think, I mean, that, that's another big lesson I've, I've learned trying to have sort of a social media career. Like I, um, I won't get into it because it's sort of a boring story, but I, I pissed one person off on Twitter, um, like fall 2019, maybe, um, to end, uh, not the person who I think real name docs me just to be clear, but, uh, just one sort of random person who had like more influence than I, I realized they did. And like that impacted my, like, to whatever extent I could call it a career, but like that, that impacted my presence on Twitter and it still impacts it. And that's, that, I think that's something that people like don't really think about. Like it's those weird, subtle things more than oversharing, more than being leaky with your data. All those things matter but the interpersonal relationships that form or, or break or whatever are, are much more significant. I mean, they're also what can help you. Right. That's true. But then again, I guess that's only true of like Twitter and stuff, because I don't, that's the thing, like to kind of bring it back to Tumblr and stuff, because I think the kind of special thing about Tumblr was that it was kind of so separate from like the rest of the social media, like ecosystem almost, because, you know, Tumblr used to have like a set of celebrities or like, I don't know, even thinking back to like, um, like eating disorder Tumblr, or like, you know, like sort of like Thinspo Tumblr, like there was a set of celebrities. And I remember there was this one girl, um, she was Swedish, um, I believe. And she was like a big, like Thinspo model on Tumblr and, you know, like people would like repost her endlessly and stuff. And eventually she ended up becoming like a regular influencer of sorts or like a fitness influencer. Um, and like, to this day, like if you go to her Instagram page, it's like people will be commenting on her weight all the time. Um, and like her career now has absolutely nothing to do with like her presence on Tumblr and like what she represented on Tumblr. But 
people, but like her image um, in like 2012 has stayed with people and kind of, I guess, is still making the rounds on Tumblr to this day where people are sort of like that her, her past, her past image is still kind of like haunting her and people are like almost like harassing her because of that, because she dared to like get better and, you know, like have a career outside of that. Um, I don't know why I just randomly went on this tangent about this girl, but I just, I think there is, I, I do think that there is a difference between all these like social media platforms, but then I guess that's the thing though. I think the image on the internet is a lot more powerful than, than words. And even if, you know, you can say all sorts of things, but I think things are way less likely to haunt you than images. I think that it's true and it's not true though, because I feel like, you know, there's a lot of, I feel like you can get, you can detach yourself from images and stuff. Like think of all the, the girls who like went viral, um, you know, with like self-harm pics or like very famous, like thigh gap pics. Like those are all people, you know? Mm, Um, True. And sometimes they become just so divorced from the actual person. And there's like images floating around of, of girls who look like, quote unquote, like very aesthetic. I mean, the other thing of it, thing, thing about it is like, I felt so much more free to be an asshole on Tumblr. I mean, I, so um, maybe I won't say this because I'm realizing that I, that every time I tell this story, I, I make it easier to find my, my Tumblr. So I, I won't tell it, but I, I, my one Tumblr claim to fame is I started a meme and, you know, it's like, I don't think I would have been able to like make that same joke um, you know, on, on Twitter, like I felt so free to just say and post, um, images, but also text, um, on Tumblr in a way that like, you know, like maybe it'll come back to haunt me, but I, I'm, it'll, it'll be, it'll be challenging. Right. And I also like, didn't feel any anxiety getting dogpiled by like keyboard warriors, um, on, on Tumblr because it just didn't, it just felt like the stakes were really low. Like, what, like, what are they going to do? You know, like, I, I didn't, I don't know, like, it, it would have been very difficult at the time for them to like, really, um, really come after me. And I feel like you, you never really think like the thing that gets ruined on Tumblr is your reputation on Tumblr. Um, and there's exceptions to this rule, obviously, right? Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about it. But for the average user, it seems like the case in a way that it is, isn't true on other platforms or isn't true anymore. Maybe it's platform agnostic, but it has to do about the, has to do with the time we're living in. Um, you know, it just felt like you could just delete your account and then like, whatever, people were mad at you. You just left, <laughs> you know, um, lots of catfishing happened. Lots of people killing off their persona and just coming back under a new account and nobody knew. And that feels like that happens on Twitter, but like not really in the same way. Right. I mean, it's kind of, I, I talked about this on my most recent episode. I think it's because on Tumblr, the intentions behind people's actions on Tumblr seem so unclear because it's like, you know, if someone's active on Twitter or Instagram or any of the like TikTok, like, you know what they're trying to do, you know, they're trying to make a career out of it. But when someone sinks like 50 hours into their Tumblr account, it's like, what are they trying to get out of it? Like, there's no way right. Tumblr is monetizable. There's no way you can be, there's no way that Tumblr fame can be turned into literally any other type of fame. So, you know, and the people that do end up doing something with like Tumblr aesthetics or like, you know, the sort of the, the Tumblr, um, 
yeah, the Tumblr aesthetic, like they, they do it on other platforms. So I think Tumblr is a mystery in that way because it's like, what is so fascinating about this website that people have sung, you know, literal years into like curating their feeds and stuff, but they don't ever get anything out of it. And um, that's the crux of fandom, right? <laughs> yeah, that, that's so true. That is so true. And I think, well, actually I have kind of a theory about it as well. Um, I think that, I think a big reason why, you know, um, art and literature um, kind of got to the state that it is at right now is partially because of Tumblr, because I think a lot of people with creative impulses um, ended up getting sort of like sunk to into this like Tumblr rabbit hole of fandom. So a lot of like talented people ended up creating like fan art or like writing fanfics instead of kind of developing their talents in a way that would manifest in a more legitimate sort of um, more artistic way. So like, so what we ended up with is a lot of, yeah, is a lot of YA, a lot of fan fiction and a lot of fandom art instead of anything that would then become sort of a new, um, a new canon out of its own. It's, it's interesting. Like a lot of, I think you're, I think you're totally right. Like a lot of careers got made off of Tumblr. Um, but it seemed like, um, I don't know. It seemed like it had more integrity also somehow. Um, there's also, there was also like a whole bunch of like it girls, I feel like were, were like who had, who became like real world, um, it girls who I feel like were made by Tumblr. And somehow it didn't feel like they were clout chasing. It was just like their Tumblr uh, like showed off who they were. And it's like, it, I don't, like, like who knows how they got where they, they were. They were. It was just like somehow more mysterious. It seemed like more organic somehow. Right. Yeah. I think the element of like, yeah, again, like intentions and like clout chasing is just not really a big part of that sphere. It can't be. So it does seem more organic of just like, again, it's like kind of a matter of luck, I guess, kind of like being discovered in airport and becoming a supermodel. And I think maybe that's part of the reason why such a huge amount of teenagers now are kind of migrating back to Tumblr, because it does allow for that kind of spontaneity and luck and like manifestation to take place instead of like, like sort of having to algorithmically like manifest your destiny yeah you can you have to find people through through shared interests which is maybe it's the only place on the internet that's really like that 